Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today's episode 300. It's titled, Ray Dalio and the Changing World Order. Ray Dalio founded the hedge fund Bridgewater Associates in 1975. He is the author of the best-selling book, Principles. He's a billionaire and an extremely successful investor. He has been writing a new book and sharing it online. He has shared three chapters, and it's about the changing world order. Billy, a listener to the show, a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus, pointed out this new work by Dalio to me and asked, what can we as individuals do to prepare for and potentially profit from the pending new world order, assuming Dalio is correct? Also, do you feel the replacement of the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency is an inevitability, as Dalio proposes? I'm choosing this topic because there is much that Ray Dalio and I agree on. Many of the themes that are discussed in his new book, we've covered on the podcast. So I thought it would be helpful because Dalio is such a renowned investor. He's a deep thinker. He understands how markets and economies work, that it would be in some ways a great review of a number of the episodes that we've covered recently regarding financial markets, central banks, currency. Dalio shares his investment process, which is to look at many economic and political events over long periods of time in order to see what patterns exist. He calls them archetypes and the cause and effect relationships. He's seeking a higher level big picture perspective while also paying attention to details. When an event is happening or a series of events, he will compare them to his archetype to see whether they're following the archetype, the pattern, or how it might be different. This process of looking at patterns and then seeing if events that are occurring fit that pattern, his archetype, helps him to make investment decisions. What to do next, given what is happening? He sees the world as having long-term cycles, repeating patterns of prosperity, depression, war, bull and bear markets. It's a similar approach that we discussed in episode 224, profiling Howard Marks and his book, Mastering the Market Cycle. What I like about Dalio and Marks is their humility. Great investors are humble. Dalio writes, while I have learned an enormous amount that I will put to good use, I recognize that what I know is still only a tiny portion of what I'd like to know in order to be confident about my outlook for the future. Still, I know from experience that if I wanted to learn enough to be satisfied with my knowledge, I'd never be able to use or convey what I have learned. It'd just take him too long because he would still trying to learn and learn and learn. At some point, 
You have to make an investment decision and choose. He continues, so please understand that while this study will provide you with my very top-down, big-picture perspectives on what I've learned and my very low-confidence outlook for the future, you should approach my conclusions as theories rather than facts. That's important. We're going to look at his views, his big-picture, top-down view. What can we learn from it? How does it relate to what we've discussed earlier in the podcast? And as Billy asked, what should we do about it? Dalio identifies 17 forces that lead to the rise and falls of empires and lead to classic cycles. The most important principle is human productivity. He writes, increased productivity is what leads to greater wealth, power, and living standards over time. What is productivity? It's the amount of output produced per person. And if that productivity is increasing due to technology, innovation, education, that allows countries to be more wealthy. We discussed this back in episode 142, titled, Why Are Some Nations Wealthier Than Others? That episode was prompted by a security guard on a beach in Mexico where we were staying. And he asked me, why is Mexico so much poorer than the U.S.? And why didn't he make that much money? And we determined in that episode and in episode 231, why do some people make more than others? That it comes down to productivity. How much output is being produced per person? More productive companies can pay workers more, even if the job that they're doing is the same as in some other country, because overall, the company is making greater profits and income because of higher productivity. They can pay everyone more. So productivity is the biggest force. But there were 17 other ones that lead to the rise and falls of empires. If these things are growing, then that's good. It creates more wealth, greater productivity. Here they are very quickly. Leadership capabilities, education levels, character, determination, rule of law, corruption, resource allocation efficiency, openness to global thinking, productivity output growth, cost competitiveness, trade and capital flows, infrastructure and investments, indebtedness, military strength, gaps in wealth, opportunities and values, internal conflict, geography, acts of nature. We have discussed all of those forces at one point or another on the podcast. Now, there are eight measures of wealth, a country's wealth, and these are essentially subsets or derivatives from these forces. When you're looking at how wealthy a country is, one versus the other, his eight leading reasons are first education, competitiveness, technology, economic output, share of world trade, military strength, financial center strength, and reserve currency. And he has a graph that shows how these forces, these eight, rise and fall over time. And what's interesting is it starts with education and innovation and technologies. As those ramp up and a country becomes more wealthy, then some of the later areas, the reserve currency, the wealthiest countries in the world throughout history have had what is known as the reserve currency, the currency that other countries want to hold, the currency that much of trade is conducted in. 
the country with the reserve currency, and currently that's the U.S., the dollar has what has become to be known as an exorbitant privilege. They're able to borrow more money and carry higher debt burdens because they are the reserve currency. People want to hold the currency, and it strengthens that currency. 55% of international transactions, including trade, are conducted in the U.S. dollar. That compares to the euro, which is about 25% of all international transactions. The Japanese yen, the Chinese yuan, and the British pound are a much smaller subset. One of Dalio's concerns is that the U.S. dollar will lose its status as the reserve currency. It's a topic that we've covered in other podcasts. He writes, having a reserve currency allows the country to borrow a lot more than it could otherwise borrow, which leads it to have too much debt that can't be paid back, which requires its central bank to create a lot of money and credit, which devalues the currency. So nobody wants to hold the reserve currency as a store hold of wealth. That's his fear. It's something that we talked about in episode 295 just a few weeks ago, Federal Reserve Insolvency and monetizing the national debt. The dollar is a non-interest-bearing perpetual liability or debt of the Federal Reserve. If individuals and businesses don't want to hold it, if commercial banks don't want to hold reserves denominated in the dollar and want to hold other storeholds of wealth, then the value of the dollar could fall. And perhaps the U.S. could lose its reserve currency status. Now, these are very long-term cycles. I don't believe the dollar is at risk of losing its reserve status in the near term. It could be years, if not decades. If anything, there's greater demand for the dollar because one aspect of the reserve currency is businesses want to borrow in it. They want to borrow in dollars. And countries peg their currency to the dollar. We discussed Lebanon. In episode 297, how to protect your savings and how Lebanon had tied their currency to the dollar. And due to a dollar shortage and economic developments within Lebanon, they had to devalue their currency relative to the dollar. In episode 260, we discussed the dollar shortage and how there are over $20 trillion of dollar borrowings and hedges around the world. I don't see another currency stepping up to be the reserve currency at this point. But it could change in the decades ahead. And he describes, Dalio describes how things decline. The downside when an empire loses its dominant position and is taken over by someone else, another country. So the first step is when debts become very large, when central banks lose their ability to stimulate debt and economic growth. And there's an economic downturn, more printing of money that eventually leads the currency to be devalued. Is there a point where central banks just aren't able to stimulate enough? What do we see happening now? The Federal Reserve is expanding its balance sheet by purchasing assets, lending in coordination with the Treasury to businesses to help those businesses make it through this pandemic. We have government spending programs effectively being financed or monetized by the Federal Reserve, by the Bank of England. We have central banks in conjunction with federal governments, pegging their interest rates. Bank of Japan, keeping interest rates at zero. The Bank of Australia, pegging interest rates. And other countries, potentially doing that. 
in order to monetize the debt. The central bank can purchase those bonds so that hopefully the economy grows at a rate that the government debt to GDP does not get to a point where it gets too high. And investors lose confidence in holding treasury bonds, in this case, as a potential store of wealth or a place of safety. A second aspect of the decline is when there's a big gap in wealth between the richest and the poorest and a gap in values, what people hold dear. And we see populism, extremism. A third aspect is when the rich or the wealthy decide they do not want to hold their assets in the reserve currency, that they're seeking other inflation hedges, gold, other currencies, perhaps moving their assets offshore. A fourth aspect of decline is when there are rival powers, and it's harder for a country to maintain its geopolitical influence. We're seeing that now with the rise of China and the conflict between the U.S. and China, just conflicts over this pandemic and trade. A fifth aspect is exogenous shocks, acts of nature, or other things that come out of the blue, the coronavirus pandemic in this case. And a sixth aspect of decline or indicator is when the leadership of a country is just is too weak, ineffective leadership. Citizens don't trust the leadership. There's a lot of infighting, corruption. Those are the six aspects. I think it can be argued that the U.S., is experiencing all six of those things right now. So certainly isn't ascending on many of those aspects. I, I think we'd have to be frank and say it's declining. Dalia says it's 75 years have gone by and that he believes we're at the end of a long-term debt cycle where the amount of debt held by households and businesses and governments has gotten to the point which is too great and it makes it difficult when there's an economic contraction for households and businesses to service that debt, and that central banks are brought in to create money, to print money, to help out those entities, to help out state and local governments that are struggling right now. Now, this decline could go on for decades, or we could see a resurgence. China, in my opinion, has a long way to go to take over the U.S., but we don't know. And so our responsibility is to make sure that we're prepared for what happens. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. 
And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david. netsuite.com david. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. There are some principles discussed, kind of spread out throughout these early chapters of the book. Monetary principles that we've discussed on the podcast that I absolutely agree with. First is money has no intrinsic value. Fiat currency has no value inherently. It's debt of the central bank and can be created with accounting entries, mostly by commercial banks, but also by the Federal Reserve. Second principle is money is not wealth. Wealth is the ability of a country to create goods and services. Creating more money doesn't necessarily mean a country is more wealthy, particularly if that money is not invested in new projects that can lead to higher productivity. Rising prices does not mean wealth has increased. We think it does. If your house goes up in value, we think, well, I'm more wealthy now. If stocks go up, I'm more wealthy. But if wealth is measured by the intrinsic value of something, are you more satisfied with your house if it costs more? Not necessarily. So he delineates between wealth and rising prices. He points out a difference between money and debt. Money is what settles claims to pay for something, pay for your bills, to buy something. But debt is a promise to deliver money in the future. When we borrow money, we get that money today to buy something, but we promise to deliver future money to pay off that debt. And then there's inflation, and we've discussed inflation at length. And inflation is a result of more money being created primarily by commercial banks through its lending. As more and more money is created and the wealth, the ability of companies to produce goods and services isn't increasing as fast, then that can lead to inflation. On the Money for the Rest of Us website under Guides, there's a complete guide to understanding inflation and deflation. We go into great depth on that. Dalio mentions another type of inflation. It's really asset price inflation, that if Households and businesses decide they don't want to continue to own a currency. They could buy an inflation-hedged asset. They could buy gold. They could put it in other currencies, causing the value of the home currency to depreciate. And that could cause a spike in import prices. That's exactly what is happening in Lebanon. When the Lebanese pound was devalued by 50%, it will cause inflation. Because now you need more of that currency to buy something, which means the price of things are going up. Dalio raises a series of questions that we should all ask regarding our economic well-being. How much income do you have and will you have in the future relative to your expenses? How much savings do you have and what's that savings in? If your income fell or disappeared, how long would your savings last? 
how much risk you have in the value of the investments in your savings. If your savings fell in value by half, how would you be financially? Can you easily sell your assets to get cash to pay your expenses or service your debts? And what are your other sources of money from the government or from elsewhere? We all have to ask those things. I look at my balance sheet once a month and consider those things. When we talk about risk, risk is not volatility. Risk is your ability to maintain your lifestyle if your assets, your savings, fell by half. Dalia points out that, that all businesses, households, not-for-profits are, are very similar. They all are asking these questions. When I managed and consulted to university endowments and private foundations, these are things that we asked ourselves in putting together those portfolios. Now, one of the things I liked about Dalio's work is he's still hopeful. He points out we have great human capital and our ability to innovate and in technologies should allow us to overcome these challenges that we're facing. If there's a new world order, if there's a depression, he points out most people are still employed. If there's wars, most people will survive. Most people will survive this pandemic. So there are some big challenges, but ultimately, he believes and I believe that humanity can overcome these things. These are natural cycles that occur. Now, we have no idea when this potential replacing of the U.S. as the leading economy in the world, the leading military power, or the holder of the reserve currency, when that reign might end. It has for every other reserve currency over the centuries. So to answer Billy's questions, what do we do about it? Well, one is things I've discussed in recent episodes. Have much of your savings in something besides your home currency at the bank. Own some gold. Own some real estate. Own stocks, particularly stocks outside of your home country. And I wasn't really as clear about this in recent episodes. I didn't mean to open a brokerage account in some other country. If you're a U.S.-based investor, if you buy a non-U.S. index fund or ETF, it's denominated in another currency. Now, it's always translated back into U.S. dollars every single day. But if it's an unhedged ETF or fund, if the dollar weakens relative to other currencies, you benefit from that because the stocks are generating revenue and income in other currencies, and then it's just translated back into the dollar. So if, if the dollar has weakened and that currency has strengthened, then you're not harmed by the depreciation in the dollar. Another thing is having an ability to generate cash flow. So if your home currency gets depreciated, you can still earn money in some ways in that home currency and hopefully in other currencies. Nothing I'm sharing here is new, but I, I think it's helpful to see how other investors think about these things and are worried about these things. I think it's important to have knowledge about them, to understand the relationships, to protect ourselves. But I'm also very hopeful. I don't necessarily foresee the dollar crashing in the next year, but I invest in a way that I'm protected if it did happen. Not that it wouldn't be harmed. I would be harmed just like most of us. But could I survive? Could I continue to maintain my lifestyle? That's, that's the important thing if these things happen. But again, it could be decades. We could be dead by then. We just don't know. But understanding the relationships, understanding the principles of how money works, how to invest it, 
and how to live without worrying about it. That, that's the point of, my, of the podcast for 300 episodes, really more than 300 episodes. So thanks for listening, for sharing the show with others, for leaving reviews, for wanting even more content by becoming a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. This is episode 300. Again, thanks for listening. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.